I, I just felt the next, uh, the Lord wanted me to exhort you guys in this. Um, church is so important. And you know, it's interesting that in the New Testament, of course, the technology wasn't there. Thanks, Bill. This is Bill Diver, everyone. So, <laughs> um, in the New Testament, you know, we don't have, um, you know, uh, satellite campus churches and whatnot. What they had was they had house, house churches. And, and really, I mean, you didn't have a big room like this. It was generally a house church and the teaching of the word, the fellowship of believers. But one of the things that Paul talks about and he exhorts especially the Corinthian church about is to recognize their spiritual gifting and use it for the body of Christ. And I want to really encourage you to, to not, not give up on going to church, not give up on using your gifts in the church body, not give up. If the Lord speaks to you and wants you to go encourage somebody, go do it. Use your gifts in the church because you're not just here to, to take from the church, you're here to, to bring your gifts into the church. So I want to really encourage you with that. All right, uh, I have a, friend, a couple friends here tonight, and I want to bring them up, Justin and Aaron McDonald. So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <laughs> we'll see what else happens tonight. Yeah, come on up. <laughs> so, yeah, careful, everyone. Just Here's a mic. Uh, Justin and Aaron McDonald have been um, serving in the Philippines for, well, it's been ten, seven years. Oh, I thought it was longer. <laughs> it seemed like longer. Seven years. And we actually got the opportunity. I took a youth group uh, years ago, and we actually went and hung out with you guys in the Philippines for a while, and that was fun. And uh, you guys now have come home. You've, you've uh, just realized the Lord has wrapped things up there, and you're here. And you're getting ready to start a new venture. And can you tell us about what you're going to be doing? Yeah, well, we've, tomorrow we'll be back a month. So we're still kind of learning how to be American in America. It's a really interesting thing, but... We got uh, accepted to Campus Crusade for Christ, and they have a part called Bridges, which specifically reaches international students. And that's a lot of what we were doing in the last, especially four years in the Philippines, doing outreach among Iranians, of all people. And so God has really given us a desire to share the gospel with internationals and students who, who are hard to reach and live in hard to reach places. And we have this amazing opportunity now, but uh, students are coming from all over the world to study in our schools. So we'll be assigned at UCI. Um, a lot of people call it the University of Chinese Immigrants. So I'll be, if anybody knows Mandarin, raise your hand and you can start teaching me. Um, <laughs> but we're looking forward to seeing how God's going to use us in reaching the Chinese and, and whoever else he brings before us. Now, Justin and Aaron, they had no idea where Campus Crusade was going to assign them. And he just told me tonight they found out it's going to be UCI. So they'll be local and we'll get to hear more about what they're doing. But you're getting ready to go off to Florida next month for a month-long training yeah. uh, with Campus Crusade. Uh, they are trying to raise uh, money to support themselves during that training and then ongoing as they work with Campus Crusade for Christ. So please pray for them. If you want to know more, you can talk to Justin and Aaron about it. And I wanted to go ahead and just take an opportunity to pray for you guys. But is there anything else you wanted to share about this new venture or what's going on? Um, well... What's really exciting, I guess, for me in particular is I'm working, I have two little boys at home. So I have a three-year-old and a four-year-old. And in the Philippines, they were like the heart of our ministry. They're the, they were the nets that we casted out. And all the students just were immediately like, oh, these cute little boys. And immediately friendships 
blossomed and we were able to reach many for Christ because we've just put our kids out there. So it'll be a new thing to, to be doing and including our kids with that. So that's what I'm really excited about is seeing our kids get to be a part of something as well as us. Um, I'm excited to be with an organization. Before, when we went out, we went independent. And so I'm excited to be a part of a team. We'll be working with a, a team of other bridge team members. And um, it's just going to be a totally uh, similar situation, but totally different with the way that we'll be doing things. So those are the things I'm excited about, um, working with the team, working with my kids, um, with the students, and just being um, in the Philippines, we were kind of like the second family to a lot of the Iranian students, and I'm looking forward to doing that in my own home culture, being able to be um, very um, hospitable. I'm excited to have things at my uh, available to me that weren't available to me in the Philippines, and they will be here. So, so you guys will be reaching, uh, sp specifically the Bridges program is to reach the foreign students that are here, and to obviously teaching Bible studies with them, fellowship groups, and then also plugging them into fellowships, uh, local churches around UCI, and uh, that they can, the students can get to and whatnot. So, and then of course send them back as missionaries, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, the, I, I'll tell you, we live in a, a special age where the missionaries literally are coming to us. We can reach them and send them back home to be missionaries. So it's a it's a neat new culture and missions that we're, we're, we're hitting here in the United States. So let me pray for you too and uh, just ask God's blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for my wonderful friends, Justin and Aaron. And Lord, we do pray in this new venture that you would lead them. And I know you have been. And we just pray for your provision financially, spiritually. Uh, Lord, we just pray for your protection to be upon them as they travel. Lord, protect their kids from any sicknesses. Lord God, we just ask for your mercy to be upon them. And God, we're excited to see what you do through them. Here they are, Lord. Use them. That's always been their cry. So we, we just ask for this blessing and we pray uh, for a wonderful harvest. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, God bless you guys. It's good seeing you here tonight. They they called me, Justin called me a couple, a few days ago. Or maybe it was last week. No, it was this week. And uh, he said, well, I, I don't know if we'll, we'll make it, we'll be able to make it before we go to Florida, but we'll try to stop by. And then he showed up and they said, surprise. So, <laughs> so we're glad you're here with us tonight. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 9, we're moving forward. And I want to read a, a short verse to you real fast as we, you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9. Jesus said this in Mark 13, he said, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So we are in the middle of the great tribulation period as we've been going through Revelation. And I just want to recall your, your minds to these words of Christ that God himself acknowledges that this time will be a time of trial upon the earth like has never been seen before. A time of mourning, a time of sorrow, a time of grief. But also, there's going to be a great awakening. A time of, of people coming to the Lord. And a time of rejection. So we're, as we get into this tonight, I want to uh, just 
share something that C.S. Lewis said to you. C.S. Or C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Isn't that an interesting statement that C.S. Lewis made? That the difference in the two people is one saying, God, your will be done. The other's God saying to them, all right, your will be done. I'm going to give you what you want. And, and that's the only reason why there is a hell is because people want their will versus God's will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this night, and we pray for your blessing as we read your word, and we just ask you to give us understanding. Lord, help us not just to hear your word, but to be doers of your word. God, as we listen, as we learn, and as we understand, I pray, God, that you would help us to apply it to our lives, to our minds, to our heart, and to our deeds. Lord, let us be changed by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've, uh, I've actually been really blessed as we've started this series in Revelation. Um, the two books that most likely will cause your church fellowship to fail are the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. At least that's what studies say, believe it or not. Um, and, and, uh, and most people say, well, Revelation sounds so exciting, so intriguing. But the fact is, is when you start finally getting into the prophecy, people go, ah, I don't know. And, and they bail. And remember before we started, I said, I won't bail after chapter 4 if you don't bail after chapter 4. And what I've been seeing in our church fellowship, and even those who can't join us Sunday nights but listen to the podcast, is I'm getting calls from people. I'm, be, I'm hearing about people being challenged in their life right now, in their witness with their friends. And it's, it's such an amazing blessing to see as they, as they see what God is going to do, as they start having a perspective that things aren't just going to continue on as they always have been, but we are moving towards an end. Christ is coming, and I should be living for his coming. Whether I see his coming or I meet him, whatever, whichever way it goes, I should be living with that in mind as a Christian. And, and it's been a wonderful blessing hearing about this, this change in, in people within our fellowship. You know, this week we, we saw that terrible tragedy unfold in San Bernardino on Wednesday. And uh, the following day, New York Daily News put out this, uh, this cover, and I'm sure most of you have heard about it. God isn't fixing this. And uh, they posted some of the tweets of politicians saying that their thoughts and their prayers were with the victims, that they're praying for people. And their response is, God can't do anything. He's not going to fix it. Quit telling us you're going to pray, and let's get some gun control. Quit telling us you're going to pray, and let's actually do something. Now, I don't want to be a person who's involved in, in your political choices. I'm not going to rant about political things up here in the pulpit. We're going to study the Word of God. But I do want you to realize this is, this is very interesting to me because I remember the Sunday after 9-11 in 2001. And maybe you remember that too, but I remember neighbors from our neighborhoods coming to this church, coming in for prayer, looking for for God's spiritual guidance, looking to see how they could pray for their nation. I, I, I very much remember that. I, I remember both services were full that Sunday, and they were full of people who we don't normally see in church. It, it was like having a, a Christmas Eve service or a, an Easter Sunday service with how many people were here. And we saw the same sentiment happen from the author of Charlie Hebdo after the Paris terrorist attack. 
She said, don't tell us you'll pray for us. Paris is about love, kisses, joy. We don't want your prayers. We don't want your religion. And so we see this change, the sentiment going anti-God as things are getting worse. And I want you to realize something. I saw God in this attack all the way through. And you might say, well, how did you see God? Well, obviously the tragedy was terrible. And, and I, I know that I, and I'm sure like you, started praying as soon as I started hearing about what was going on. And when you find out about the events and how they unfolded, these two terrorists, these cowards, went in, they shot up these people, they left, they got away. They were 10 miles away when some anonymous tip came in, and the police said, okay, we'll go check it out. And it happened to be the house where these terrorists were staying, and then, of course, the shootout unfolded. Four hours later, the police find these guys. And amazing is the shootout breaks out in the middle of the street. Not a single innocent bystander is hit. The bombs that these terrorists had, had made and planted and implemented, they never went off. And you tell me our, God, our prayers aren't effective? I disagree with you. I absolutely believe that it's by God's mercy and his grace that the police found these people. It's by his mercy and his grace that these bombs didn't go on. It's by his mercy and his grace that the law enforcement was protected. So God is absolutely moving. And, and, and I believe that is exactly what we need to fix this situation is more God. We need Jesus Christ. We need the hope that he gives us, the love that he promises us, the forgiveness of sin, and most of all, a new mind. Some call it brainwashing. I say, yeah, we do need a good brainwashing. It's just a fact of the matter. We're sinful people. So as we get into Revelation 9, we're going to see literally all hell break loose today. And we're going to see that the people continue on in their sin. Chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only to those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and, it, and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In, the appearance, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their feet, feet, teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. 
The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. If you remember, we started, we started, Jesus started opening the scroll, and we had seven seals being broken on this scroll. And as we got to that seventh seal, we get seven trumpets. And as the trumpets were blasting and, and the earth is suffering, all of a sudden we find that in the middle of these seven trumpets, the knowing that the seventh trumpet will be the establishment of Christ and his kingdom, but as these trumpets are blowing, in the midst of these trumpets, we see an angel announcing, woe, woe, woe to the earth. And these woes are, I mean, it's already bad. And now on top of that, this angel says, hey, it's going to get worse. It's going to get really bad. And now we're at the first woe. I want to point out to you this, this star fallen from heaven. It says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, we've seen stars falling in the book of Revelation so far. We've seen cataclysmic events happening. And again, John is trying to describe these things, and we may not be able to say specifically what these things are, but we also don't want to take everything allegorically and completely make everything into a figurative illustration or something. We want to recognize that, no, these cataclysmic events are happening to the earth. This is God's judgment upon an unbelieving earth. And, and with a goal in mind, with a goal to bring back, to restore Israel, to bring back Israel to himself, and also to give people another chance at faith in Christ. So these, these seals are being, these trumpets are being blown, and in this fifth trumpet, we see a different kind of star. We see a star that's personified. It says that he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now the interesting key to this star is the word fallen. The word fallen in Greek is in a, in, in a peculiar tense. It's in the perfect tense, and it's actually a perfect participle, which means that it's something that has happened, but continues on. Somebody, the, the star has fallen previously, but continues in a fallen state. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Satan. We call him Satan, Lucifer, Obviously, that's a, a term given from the Latin Vulgate. The term Lucifer comes for, out of that, the morning star. But that's who we're talking about. We're talking about the enemy. Also, he's called the accuser of the brethren. This person is given the key, this enemy, and he literally is allowed to go unlock this, bottom, this pit, the abyss. And, and these demons who are locked up in this abyss are set forth on the earth. Interesting, you know, I think Satan, one of his greatest deceptions is convincing people he doesn't exist. Convincing people that they can just go on, that temptation, that his work doesn't exist. The Bible tells us that our, 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 we don't struggle against flesh and bone, but against principalities. That our struggle is actually spiritual first and foremost, not physical. Interesting. I wonder, do you live that way? Do you live to, to say, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me to discern the enemy and his tactics. When things happen like terrorist attacks, are you praying against the enemy, the evil one, who the Bible tells us prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour his prey? Do you realize that his whole goal is to kill you, to murder you, to destroy you and your family? Parents. 
He wants your children. It's more than just the influences at school or the influences from TV. There's, there's actually a spiritual being behind all these things that desires to devour. We should be wise. Do, do we really think it's a coincidence that Hollywood uh, tends to lean so far into depravity? Is that really a coincidence? Why is it that, that so many people who are depraved and anti-Christian control the media? Is that really just a coincidence? No way. The Bible tells us it's not. He, he's he's the, the God of this world, the Bible tells us. It's Satan. And here he is given the keys, finally given, given this ability to open up the bottomless pit. You know, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And we also know that a future time is coming when he will be finally kicked out of heaven. And, and if, of course, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that Satan does have access before heaven right now. And that's why he stands day and night accusing the brethren, accusing uh, those, uh, th- those who are in Christ. He accuses, accuses. And, of course, in Job, we see that this strange passage about Satan going, the angels presenting themselves before God. And there's Satan right there. Where have you been, Satan? Going to and fro throughout the earth. <laughs> that's what he's been doing. Just trying to destroy. In fact, Satan says, hey, you know, uh, well, God actually says to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He won't turn. And, uh, and Satan's like, oh, no, he'll turn. He'll turn. Of course, Satan's not playing a trick on God, and Satan's not as powerful as God. He's not an equal to God, but he's definitely an adversary, and we should be aware. And, of course, he begins to, uh, God allows Satan to bring calamity upon Job and his family. God allows that. Now, it wasn't just to be mean to Job. God was going to reveal himself to Job in a wonderful way. Job was going to see God in a whole new light. And, of course, you and I benefit extremely from Job. Uh, As you read through the book of Job, you start going, man, my goal in a trial is not to say why, God, but my goal is to say what do you want me to do, God? How do you want me to worship you? How can I exalt you? How can I praise you during this time? And so we know that this enemy goes around. Jude, one, or um, in Ezekiel, we get this interesting passage about Satan. It says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, and onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. Uh, And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed. Guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. And you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. Ezekiel gives this passage, and actually God is giving a prophecy to the king of Tyre, but then this kind of weird passage where he starts talking about the guardian cherub. We're like, wait, this isn't the king of Tyre. This is 
somebody else. This is Satan, the enemy, the accuser. Of course, Isaiah 14 also talks about him uh, as, as God is also giving a, a prophecy. But what we see is that Satan is corrupted. He's a corrupted being and is set on one thing, corrupting you and me and the rest of this world. And so here he goes. He's given the key to the bottomless pit. And this bottomless pit, the, the abyss or abuso in Greek, as he opens it up, what we see is there are spiritual demons locked up. And, and this is strange. It gives us this little picture into the spiritual world that, of course, it launches so many questions for us. Wait a minute. There's a special. How, I, I thought all the demons were kind of roaming wild until Christ comes back. Well, that's not really the case, is it? We know that there are certain demons that are chained up, that are locked up. We, in fact, the abyss is mentioned seven times in Revelation. And one of the things we're going to see is that Satan himself eventually is chained up during the millennial reign of Christ into the abyss. And of course, Jesus and Luke, if you remember, when he met that demoniac on the other side of the Gerasenes, and, and, and if you remember back to when we studied this in Mark, the demoniac, he said, what's your name? And the name is Legion, for we are many. And these demons begged Jesus, please send us into the pigs, not into the abyss or the abuso. Basically, we, we still want our freedom. Don't chain us down. And so for whatever reason we don't know, Jude tells us the thief, or uh, Jude tells us, and the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And Jude is alluding there to the tribulation period, the judgment of the great day. That these angels, these fallen angels, these demons, for whatever reason, and there's been lots of theories, some date, go back to Genesis 6 and so on, but those are theories. God keeps chained. But now, at this appointed time, God says, here's the key, Satan. Go unlock it. Let him out. Let him out. And what does Satan do? He goes and he opens up the bottomless pit and smoke like a great furnace comes out of it. Sun and air were darkened. The, the locusts, these locusts came out of it and they're given power. And of course, John is trying to explain this power that they've been given. And he's, his power, they're like a scorpion sting. But notice this. It's not like a normal locust. A, a normal locust devours crops and, and food. In fact, when you look at some of the worst locust catastrophes in history, um, one in eight, the 1800s uh, was in Algiers, and uh, 200,000 people died of starvation as a result of these, this terrible locust plague that came through. Locusts, this little grasshopper, that they just devour everything. Of course, we think of locusts going back to the plagues in Egypt when when it says you couldn't walk anywhere without stepping on these locusts as they had come through Egypt as a, as a plague on Egypt and Pharaoh. But here these locusts are different. One, these locusts don't devour any tree or green plant or anything like that. Two, they, they're, they're prejudiced. These locusts are very prejudiced. They only go after those who are not sealed with the seal of God. What is that seal of God? Well, I believe it's Jesus Christ. I believe, of course, we have the 144,000 sealed, those Jews that are, uh, you know, 144,000 Apostle Pauls during the tribulation period. But um, we also have those who have come to Christ, those who are 
reckoning, putting their faith in Christ. These are sealed by God. And, and so these locusts are only going to touch those who are not sealed and, and uh, nothing else on the earth. So whether or not they're actual locusts or demons, this throng, throng of demons, or, or how exactly this actually works out, we don't know. We do know that John is using the best terms he can to describe what he's seen. But here's what they do. They torment for five months. John is very specific. Five months. This isn't, we don't have to go at all allegorical on this. We can just know that five months this plague of locusts or demonic beings is, upon, is hitting the earth. And the result of it is people trying to die. People wishing for death, hoping for death, and even possibly taking their own lives. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Isn't that crazy? That these people literally are going to be trying to die so they can escape this judgment, this, this plague of locusts, these stinging locusts, and although they try to die, their soul won't leave. They can't die. What does that look like? I have no idea. It never has been seen on earth. I mean, this is good stuff for your, your zombie show, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, I mean... I, I, I can imagine someone trying to kill themselves and completely maiming themselves, but still alive as a vegetable on the earth. They cannot die. God will not allow it. Well, they go through this plague, this judgment. Death will not find them. They'll long to die, but death will flee from them. Man, it's interesting. People talk about Satan like it's no big deal. People talk about how great, in fact, in our culture today, it's almost like a, a bragging point. They, they, they mark themselves with 666. They mark themselves, they're antagonistic towards God. But when you see what Satan does, Satan's not rewarding people of the earth. He's not trying to help them out. He's not saying, hey, you've been faithful to me, let's go get God. Satan isn't discriminating at all. He's letting this out on the earth. His desire is to destroy and uh, so, of course, John gives us this, uh, this appearance of these locusts. What were they like? They were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. This is a trip. When I read this, I'm like, what in the world is this? <laughs> you know, I had that same experience when we, we got that first view in heaven and we see the cherubim flying around the throne, the seraphim. And, and they have different faces, and you're like, well, this is a weird, weird being. And, and uh, I, I, I think it's very possible that in the same way that God has, has, uh, has what he's created, Satan has his own little mock, fake, fake uh, realm here of, of these locusts that look weird. And, of course, John could be just trying to describe what these demons look like. We, he could be seeing more of the spiritual side. Or, or then again, he could be seeing... What they actually look like. All I know is that what's going to happen here is I don't, I don't want to be here. And thankfully in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to be here. Uh, we're we're going to be celebrating in heaven while this stuff is happening. They have tails and sting like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months. They have a king over them. The angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek he is called Apollyon. Or another word, the destroyer. Now, this could be Satan. We, it could be referring to Satan. Or it could be... Another angel that they answer to. We don't know. We, we do know in Scripture that it talks about different 
principalities, different demons that, that countries worship. You know, Babylon, um, Assyria, they had these different demons that they, they worship. So it very well could be another destroyer who, who is their king. Uh, the only other time in the Old Testament that Abaddon is mentioned is in the book of Job. And it's, it's always in reference with death. But five months people long to die on this earth and they cannot do it. And then it says, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Two woes still to come. <clears throat> Next one, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying in the sixth, uh, to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions, heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by, by means of them, they wound. Man, the second woe that happens is going to kill a third of already. We already lost a quarter of the earth. Now we're lo losing a third more of what was, lost, uh, what was left. So we, at this point in the tribulation period, a half of the earth is dead. Half of the earth. intense a half of the earth is going to die in this judgment being poured out remember I've, I've been sharing this every week and I want to continue to share it there is a time of grace and mercy and it is right now God, God will show mercy to those who call upon him and we know in the tribulation period there will be people calling upon God and they will receive mercy we recognize that but right now is that time of grace. Right now is the time in which you can, you can throw yourself upon the cross. You can know Christ. You can walk in Him. You can grow in Him. You can not only have the abundant life right now, but also in eternity. Now is that time for grace. This tribulation period is not something you want to test God and get into. The tribulation period is all about judgment and wrath. It's interesting if you look at the parallel between Pharaoh and Egypt and the ten plagues and the tribulation period. Do you remember God told Moses, he said, Moses, you're going to go before Pharaoh and you're going to ask Pharaoh to let my people go. And you know what, Moses, he's going to harden his heart. And I'm going to send plagues upon Egypt. And, and it's going to end with the death of the firstborn. That's how it's going to end. But every time I send a plague, I'm going to send you before Pharaoh. And he's going to do the same thing. He's going to harden his heart. Pharaoh will harden his heart. And it even says, God even says, I'll harden his heart. And, and I think what that is, is not God just controlling Pharaoh and forcing Pharaoh to, to get angry so more people get hurt. No, it's just the fact is, is that sometimes when God brings judgment, people do the exact opposite of what they should do. When I was a child, my dad used spankings to curb me and change me and redirect me so that I would do the right thing. He would discipline me. 
so that I would turn and do the right thing. Of course, as one gets older, spankings don't work, right? As one hardens their heart to their, their parent, they're just going to go and do even worse. Every time they get a discipline or whatever the case is, they'll rebel even more. And that's why the Bible tells us, train a child while they're young. And develop those convictions while they're young. Because the point comes, the time comes when those convictions, if you haven't developed them, they're going to just rebel all the more. And so here with Pharaoh, we see that as every time God shows himself to Pharaoh, as the people of Egypt worship their frog god, and God sends the plague of frogs, so you want frogs, I'll give you frogs. And they have tons of frogs, frogs everywhere. You open up your oven, there's frogs you, everywhere you walk. The bathtub, you've got to get out of bed, you've got frogs in the bed. You're stepping on frogs all day long. And, of course, if you've been to the Philippines, you know what that's like. <laughs> Kid you not, the island we were on in the Philippines, they have frogs everywhere. It's crazy. Um, but uh, just frogs everywhere. But Pharaoh didn't change. Pharaoh didn't say, okay, I see your God is greater than our gods. Okay, I see that your God is the true God. No, Pharaoh hardened his heart. In fact, Pharaoh never really repented. Because we know after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh kicks Israel out of Egypt. I want nothing to do with you or your God, is what Pharaoh's response was. And what does Pharaoh do? He comes after Israel with an army to destroy him eventually. He never repented. His heart continued getting hard. Here in the second woe, we're going to see that the people, although the, this death is coming on the earth, and people are not repenting, they'll continue to not repent. What, what kind of an army is this? Well, whether it's a, a, a demon, a demonic army, or a physical army, it seems like it would be a physical army, this massive horde coming to just destroy everything in its path, to, to kill a third of mankind. Now, by the way, this could be an event, or it could be happening over the, the course of the tribulation period. We're going to kind of see as we get into chapter 12, we're going to take a little parenthetical break from the events uh, through 14. And, and, and it's kind of like seeing Genesis 1, where Genesis 1 goes through all the seven days of creation, including man. And then Genesis 2 narrows in on the creation of man. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Revelation here. But this, this second woe, we see that the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. Now, Basically, he's saying myriads upon myriads, uh, an innumerable, innumerable amount of people, uh, people in this in this arm, army, these troops, innumerable amount. But at the same time, John says, "I heard their number. I heard them. I heard this number." So I don't think we want to. Again, I don't think we want to allegorize this. We're we're looking at a two hundred million man army. Now that's that kind of an army has never even taken the battlefield. I think I think. Uh, uh, the uh, to to come up with that kind of army, I, I was kind of looking at statistics and um, looking at the CIA World Fat Factbook about um, the CIA does their their data and they research. Okay, uh, what kind of an army could this country muster if they had to get up an army? And they they're going to date everybody from ages 18 to 49, and uh, the, the, these are these are fighting ready people and they're qualified for military service. And and believe it or not, China. I, I looked at China because I figured my, I might as well look at the top country. Uh, I told Gerardo that I wouldn't bother with Chile because there's probably no, no data there. So <laughs> as he leaves, 
Uh, by the way, Gerardo did serve in the Chilean military. They, uh, they played darts all day long. <laughs> no, but uh, males in China, ages, oh, sorry, 16 to 49, there are 385,821,000 males. Females, 300,323,000. So when I read this, I look at the, the text and I go, okay, God, that sounds impossible. A 200 million man army, I just don't see it happening. And God says, check the facts. So I start checking the facts. One country alone could field an army big enough for what we're talking about here. Now, obviously, some drastic things would have to happen. There would be, have to be some drastic motivators to fill that kind of an army. But we're talking about the end of the world here. We're talking about the worst of times. Times as have never been seen upon the earth. I think there's motivation. We've, we already know that there's been famine happening. We've seen the four horsemen. We, there, there's plenty of motivation here to create an army like this and go take from others. And so here this army, and of course it talks about their, their heads like lions. And, and key on, on the word like. John isn't saying their, head, they, their heads are are uh, their horses and lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur. John's not saying that this is what they are. He's saying it's like that. He's doing his best, even though Greek was probably is a much more accurate language than Hebrew. He's doing his best to give you and me and every church, uh, every member of the church of Jesus Christ, since him, some understanding of what he's seen in his vision. So he's saying it's like this. It's like a lion, like a fire. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their trials are like, um, for their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them they wound. Now I've even heard people speculate that this could be military devices or whatever the case is. You know, weapons of warfare. I don't know. But what we do know is a third of mankind is going to die. Now, let's key in on this last verse here, this last passage. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot, be, cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Man, what does God have to do to get our attention? What has to happen? I've heard people say, well, you know, if, 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 if I saw God, I would believe. Or if I saw this miracle, I would believe. But the fact is they won't. God has given us his word. He, he's revealed to us who he is. And still men reject him. In fact, Pascal put together that great wager years and years ago, hundreds of years ago. Pascal put together his wager and said, basically, here's the deal. Even if I wasn't a believer in Christ, but I just lived according to Christ, I would have a better life than without him. I dare you to live that way. Now, I understood where Pascal was going with that, but I don't dare you to live that way because honestly... If you're not going to believe in Christ, I say go have fun as much as you can now because it's going to be terrible for you in the end. It's going to get bad. 
So, you know, live it up if, if, if you're going to reject Christ. But, of course, I don't want you to do that. I want you to have eternity. Of course, knowing God is man's ultimate goal. Knowing God and being with Him, that is where we find true love. That's where we find ultimate goodness. God is the ultimate of all these things. But here we see that they do not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. Do people worship demons today? You bet you they do. People, idolatry is one of the key things here in the tribulation period. People are idolatrous. Well, you might say, well, I'm, I'm not idolatrous. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton once said this, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing, he believes in anything. Do you realize that? An atheist can say, oh, I don't believe God. I don't believe God exists. But basically all he's saying is, I believe I'm God. I, I, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to believe in anything I want to believe in. He, he still believes in something. It's, it's actually, if you get into the philosophical level, it's impossible to be a true atheist. It's impossible. It's a, a full-on contradiction to try to be an atheist because you do make yourself into God. And, and you rob from the Christian worldview, which is even worse. So don't rob from my worldview. If you can't support your own worldview, change it. But, but a man will worship something. What do you worship? What is worshipped in your life and in your household? Is it God? Is it the truth of the Lord God? Because here's what we do. This is what man's really good at. We look around and we say, I'm a basically good person. I'm a basically good Christian. Because I look at those people, and I'm not like them. And I'm not like that person. And I'm not like that person, so I'm a basically good person, a basically good Christian. We need to take our standard from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the standard. If we want to know God, we know Jesus. That's what Jesus said. If a man knows me, he knows the Father. If you want to know if you're a basically good Christian, will you look at Jesus Christ, the standard. Remember, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that we look to. And you might be saying right now as I say this, go, well, then it's impossible. And, and I want to tell you that, yes, it is impossible for you to do this, but Jesus said this, what's impossible for man is very possible for God. Because God does the impossible. He will put a new heart in you, His Holy Spirit in you, and you start seeking Him out. Versus living in your carnality, living for the flesh, living after him. Because all you're doing is worshiping idols in your household. Yeah, you can say all day long, I'm a Christian. But as long as you continue on in your sin, and I don't mean just the big sins. I mean actually examining yourself. God, where is there sin in my life? Show me. We're talking even the little sins. How is my tongue? The Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Does my tongue reflect a heart that worships God? Or do I excuse it away and do what I want to do? Is God the Lord of my tongue? Or am I the Lord of my tongue? You know, what do I watch? What do I involve myself in? Is it things that are, the Bible tells us to, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is praiseworthy, think on these things. These are the things we're supposed to be meditating on. And by the way, guys, 
I'm not just speaking at you. I'm speaking to Dave Johnson too. Because every time I sit down to do a sermon, Dave Johnson gets convicted like no tomorrow. And Dave Johnson goes, God, I'm not worthy to do this. I've got to repent of these things. And God says, good, I got you where I want you. Now let's move on. <laughs> so this is not just for you. This is for Dave Johnson too. But, but, but what are the things that you're meditating on and thinking on? Is it the things of heaven? Is it the things of God? Is it to be like Christ? Or is it the things of this world? This is a challenge. And you guys might say, hey, I can't be perfect. I agree, you cannot be. But Jesus can be. And you're supposed to look to him. That's where we're supposed to be looking. They're worshiping demons. Notice what this other sin is. They don't repent of their murders or their sorceries. The worse things get, the worse people get. They don't get better. Because you know what? The fact is, is man is not good inside of himself. Man is actually pretty bad inside of himself. And so what does he do in the response to people dying? Murder more. Kill more. Take more. Sorceries, the words for sorcery there is actually uh, pharmakia. And um, we get our word pharmacy from the Greek word pharmakia and pharmakia. And uh, it's, uh, of course, in the New Testament, it seems to be applied where you have medicine mixed with the worship of idols. But it's interesting, drug use, how much that is tied in with demon worship. Don't minimize, minimize drug use or even being a drunkard, or any of those sorts of things. Because all it does is jade your thinking so that you do not worship or respond to God the way you should. So that you cannot be convicted. That's all you're doing. You're just trying to dole yourself so I don't have to be convicted, repent of my sin, and turn to the Lord God so I can be healed. That's what those things do. Pharmakia, the sorceries of man, they're just going to continue. You know, it's interesting. Look at the, what happened in the 60s with the hippies. The hippies, oh man, we're going to be all about love and peace. And this is going to be wonderful. We're going to celebrate love, free love, free peace, and all this sort of stuff. And, and then what came with it? Drug use. Freeing our mind. What came after the drug use? All this mysticism, transcendentalism, Hinduism, and all these other false forms of religion. They came right on the heels of all that drug use. So men need to repent of their sorceries, their sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality is pornea. We get our word porn or pornography from it, the Greek word. And, and what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is anything outside, any sexual sin or conduct outside of what God has designed it for. God said, here's the marriage bed. I'm going to bless it. Be married. Enjoy each other. Have a great marriage and a relationship. That's what sexual relationships were designed to be in context, in marriage. But we take it and we start just using it to please ourselves. Any type of sexual conduct. You know, you can even be married and going outside the marriage bed. You can be bringing pornea into your household. No, married couples should not start watching porn together. That's, that's adultery. We should not be doing that. Oh, the world says, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to light, up, light you up and it's going to fix things. But you know what <laughs> the, the truth is? It ends up causing addictions. It ends up breaking up marriages. It does not bring about 
the righteousness of God. It will not. Man still doesn't repeat it. Hey, you know, it's the end of the world. We might as well get it on. Sexual immorality, it's just going to. It's going to continue to be rampant. And look at that, and then there's thefts. Have you looked at the natural disasters that have happened even in America? What happens right after a natural disaster? Looting. Sweet. No authority. We're going for it. It's definitely not man rallying to help man. It's not, you don't see the best, the goodness coming out of man. What you see is them stealing from each other, robbing each other. And just when you think about this bottomless pit being opened up, and all these things happening, imagine every jail and prison in the world releasing all of their convicts all at one time. What would that look like? Now, make it even more evil and recognize that these are the demons that are doing this, going after mankind, the destruction that it's going to bring about. So what should our response be? Well, our response is to repent and to walk in Him. In closing, I want to Take you to Ephesians 2.10 real fast. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Paul says this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our response. This is the Christian response. To be God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. God did not save you so that you can continue being carnal. God saved you to change you, to make you look more and more like Him. God saved you that you could repent and, and do good works and walk in them. The walk is this continual. It's not stopping. I continue to walk in Him. I don't live like the world anymore. Is it tough? Yeah, absolutely. How easy is it to just try to throw off everything and just be like the world? That's the easy thing. But you're not of the world. Talk about being tormented. I can think of no more tormenting a thing than a person who knows the truth of Christ but living carnally, never being satisfied never having that relationship with Christ because they grieve the Holy Spirit of God. If you want to have that wonderful walk with Christ, repent of any sin or carnality that you're carrying daily and turn to the God and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and start doing the good works that he's created beforehand for you to do. Start walking in those. And what you'll see is a world that doesn't, they can't mock you for praying. Because they know it's not just a platitude. They know that you actually pray. A world that says like, no, this person, I know they're a Christian. I don't agree with them anything, but they're different. They're not like all the other Christians I think of. And of course, people say that, but they're just making up stuff. But they're different. They're lights shining in the darkness. That's what I want to encourage you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, well, Lord, forgive me for being long-winded tonight. Congregation, you too, please. But Lord Jesus, we just ask you to forgive us of our sin. God, we don't want to be caught in this period. We don't want to be like the world. We want to be set apart from the world in you. We want to be ambassadors of your great 
wonderful gospel message taking it to the world. Lord, forgive us for any sin. And I, I want to encourage you right now. You confess that sin. If you've been walking in carnality, you confess it right now to the Lord. Every single thing, you just confess it between you and the Lord. Lord Jesus, save us. We thank you that we can always count upon you. We thank you that we can confess our sins and you are faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Bless our time in worship and, and communion. In Jesus' name, amen.